0: you have a Bible, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're just going to look at the first six verses tonight, but these six verses might be some of the most important verses you've never read. Not that you haven't read 2 Corinthians. I'm sure all of you have. If you've read through the New Testament, at least you've covered this chapter. Uh, But I I do believe that uh, these chapters in 2 Corinthians are kind of overlooked. Um, uh, I think uh, think that's just kind of a product of 2 Corinthians um, kind of coming out after 1 Corinthians, First Corinthians being a lot more well-known, a lot more well-cited well, uh, well cited and, and and referenced. Um, I think 2 Corinthians, uh, we, we know a lot about it. The first half of the book, the last half of the book, kind of gets lost in our memories. That might just be my opinion. It might just be my uh, my relationship with the book. Um, I think a lot of the shorter, smaller books of Paul get a lot more attention. But 2 Corinthians, as we've learned, should get a lot more attention, and it should be very important to us because it's really all about Christians stepping into the fullness of Christ, which is why we 've titled this series in Christ. the Bible says that as Christians we are in Christ as in we are stepping into his shoes we are stepping into his power stepping into his grace and if we 're stepping into him all more importantly to know he has stepped into us he is filling us with his power with his life with his grace and his mercy and so we can be transformed uh, from the inside out, which has been a theme over the last couple of weeks and uh, we're going to get into even more uh, of that subject tonight, and this, this, this few, these few verses especially talk about the work that God wants to do in our hearts. But uh, before we get started, I want to want you to all think back to when you were younger, um, not, not been that long for, for most of you, right? Uh, when you were younger, when you were kids, um, this might not be a story you can relate to, but I think all of us can can relate to something similar to this. When you were kids, um, when you and your families would go somewhere, I'm sure all of us can remember um, when we were going into somebody's house, going to some place, it might have been church, it could have been some uh, some uh, public setting that we were going to, maybe going to school, um, uh, but, but a lot of times we were going to somebody's house. Um, Maybe your parents knew that you had a certain uh, standard, a certain expectations at home. Uh, There were rules at home that your parents enforced. There were rules that they didn't enforce or there were things that they didn't enforce. And maybe you can remember going into someone else's house or maybe you learned this when you were at their house and you had to be corrected about something that you normally wouldn't be corrected about. Perhaps the next time you went over, your your parents got you to the side and said, listen, they do things differently here than we do at our house. So that thing that you get by with at home, eh, probably shouldn't try it here. Um, yeah, you might can, for instance, and this is kind of a silly thing, you might can walk to the fridge and just grab anything you want and drink out of the two-liter bottle if you want to. You probably shouldn't do that here, right? Or or if you, much more serious, you, you might can jump on the couch at home, but you probably shouldn't jump on the couch here. Not that you would try that, but you know what I mean. There are things that you can do. Maybe you can walk around your house with... Uh, Shoes on, shoes off, whatever you want to do. But maybe they have different expectations here, and and we probably should mind our manners here. And there maybe was that one family member, there was that one place that you went to where you kind of had to act a little bit more buttoned up. You kind of had to be a little bit more um, aware of what you were doing. And and maybe your parents kind of put a little bit more Uh, you know, fear in you whenever you went somewhere like that. I I think we can relate to that. Uh, Again, it might not just have been someone's home, but maybe before you went to school, you had to learn, hey, you don't do things at school like you do things at home. Or before you would go to church, you know, hey, you can do that at home, but you just don't do that at church. I I think all of us can can relate to that story where uh, we had a certain, a a different standard of expectations, a different set of rules based on where we were at, And maybe this is true, maybe you got by with stuff when it was just you and mom or you and dad, but when it was mom and dad or whenever they got home from work or they came in, maybe you had to do a little differently because, hey, you know, they don't mind if the dog comes in and jumps on the couch, but maybe he does, right? And and y'all know how that is. Uh, Pray for me. I hope I don't go home and there's not a rabbit or whatever else in the house um, because there's a rabbit on the porch right now Um, But uh, on top of dogs and cats. But but y'all know how that goes. Somebody might not mind um, something happening, but maybe somebody else does. But just don't do it when he's there, or do it when she's there. That, that kind of happens in all of our family dynamics and all of our family scenarios. But but here's what happens, and here's kind of where we what what that leads us into doing. That leads us into monitoring our behavior based on where we are and who's around. We kind of have to keep tabs. Okay, I can do thing, I can do this here, but I can't do it there. And we kind of just keep a mental tab of where we can do things and when we can't do things based on where we are and who is around or who isn't around. Now, I don't think this is a surprise to you, but that approach has zero effect of changing our nature. Which the goal isn't to change your nature, is it? The goal is just to make sure you do something based on who's around or who isn't around or where you're at or where you're not at. Uh, That has no effect to changing your nature. Um, It just causes you to be on guard and alert in particular places at particular times. Now, no parent actually expects their child to start behaving that way all the time because they literally told them or you literally tell your parents or they told us when we were little, you just have to do that at this time, at this place, in this certain situation. Now to take this idea into a much more serious scale, this is how religion trains us to relate to God. Now, I know we talk about religion a lot in contrast to a true relationship, but the Bible does this a lot. And I think this is an important way to kind of frame the difference in religion versus a true relationship. Religion uh, religion says that God only cares about how you act at certain times. Religion says God is really uh, only concerned with you doing X, Y, and Z at a certain place, a certain time, in certain situations— Religion says you should straighten up when you're in God's house or when he shows up or when you're in a certain setting that it's religious in nature. Uh, Religion says straighten up when he walks in the room, when you're in the house, which is why religion obsesses over the appearance of things. Religion really doesn't care about your motives. It doesn't really care about your nature. Religion only cares about behavior, but a very particular kind of behavior. Which is why religion is ineffective at actually changing us where it counts. And here's why religion never actually makes a difference. Religion makes us obsess over a few things that we can do really well, or a few things that we can really show off that we're good at or that we do right. And religion, it never remedies the actual problem. And it makes us have to really be defensive or really kind of portray ourselves in a certain way because religion teaches us that's all God cares about. This is why we should be convinced that religion is a product of the devil. Satan loves to convince us that all that matters to God is monitoring your behavior. Satan loves to make us concerned about dress code and situational-based obedience because Satan knows that if he can get you hung up in that kind of religious routine, he can give you a false sense of security with God. But actually, he it. it accomplishes no good where it actually matters with God. Your heart, our heart. And the scary thing is, our flesh, because we are driven by this insecurity, our flesh will cling to this and will settle for this in a heartbeat because it scratches that itch in our conscience that, am I doing something that makes God happy? Check the box. Maybe I'll be okay for a while or okay for a week. This is why when Jesus came into the world, he disrupted the world so severely, especially the people of his day, the religious leaders of his day. And he began preaching and teaching about God and about what it truly means to know God. His world was long since stuck in this, this routine, this checkbox religion, which was so far away from the covenant that God made with Israel. And you know what this really says about God and how you think about God? And I know this might, you, you might not think, well, that's not my motive. It wasn't my intention. But this is what religion really thinks about God. Religion really insinuates that God's kind of dense and that God's kind of God's clueless. Because religion, when, when we play this game of, well, I only do that when nobody else is around, what does that say about one of your parents? I'm not getting involved in how you run your home, but what does it say about the way you respect the other parent whenever you say, well, just don't do it when they're around? It, it says that you don't really respect them, right? It says that, well, I'll do it when they're not looking, but I, you know, when they're looking, I'll be all my best behavior. That kind of says that they're kind of clueless. You, you, it kind of insinuates that you think they're kind of dumb. Because they don't really know what I'm doing. And, and think about it, when religion, when we become religious with God, when we become, you know, in these routines with God and we act a certain way on Sundays but we, we go the other way on Monday, doesn't that suggest that God's kind of clueless and that God doesn't really know what's going on all the time? Yet why do we think that, why do we do that with God? Because somehow, somewhere along the way we've convinced ourselves that that's how it works. But, but I've got to be honest with you, God knows, right? God's not being, the wool's not being pulled over God's eyes at all. As long as you show up on the Sabbath day and you look good and you show off a bit, God is so impressed, but he doesn't really care about what happens the rest of the week. Now, there's no substance to that, and, and there's no good in that, obviously. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would clean up their acts on certain days of the week in certain instances, but their hearts were not focused on God, and they weren't close to him at all. He was treating God as if he was a hall monitor. Think about hall monitors in schools. You had to have a hall pass. As long as you had the hall pass, you wouldn't get in trouble. But if you walk outside without the hall pass, oh, someone's going to, you know, rat on, tattle on you and you're going to get written up or whatever, right? God is not a hall monitor. You know, God is not a security guard. God's not just trying to, you know, play some nitpicking game of, well, did you check this box? Did you check that box? That is really insulting to say that God is like that. But religion teaches us that that's what God is like because religion doesn't want to help us and religion doesn't want us to know the real God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were trying to keep God in his place so that they could live their lives the rest of the week. But, but you, don't you see that's the farthest thing from, from, from personal, uh, from a personal relationship that we could have with God? And don't you, don't you think that God wants more than that? Of course He does. This is why Jesus called the religious leaders out on a number of occasions, but most famously in Mark chapter 7, when they were having a really silly argument with him, Jesus came at him with this. Well did Isaiah the prophet uh, prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lip, but their heart is far from me. But, but Jesus... We, we look good, we're here, we never miss a service, we give, we tithe to the nth degree. I mean, we don't just give 10% of our money, we give 10% of our crops, we give 10% of all the things that we grow and all the things that we bring in. I mean, if anybody is good, it's us, but Jesus said your heart is not right. You're going through all these motions because you're trying to check boxes with God, but you have no relationship with God. He said, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And this isn't just Jesus picking on them for their traditions. Traditions are fine. But the point is, he says, you guys don't have a relationship with God. And you're leaning on these things and you're far away from God. And and that's a problem. Those things aren't any good if they're not getting you closer to God. And again, he was trying to get them to be aware that they're monitoring their behavior, but they're not monitoring their hearts. Their hearts are not where they need to be. But yeah, they behave a certain way and do a certain level of things in a certain place in a certain time, but their hearts are not right. And then Jesus says, this is what God cares about. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes the evil thoughts and all the sinful things, sexual immorality, theft, murder. He says, God cares about your heart. If your heart doesn't get changed and your heart doesn't get clean and you don't get transformed from the inside out, what good does all this religious stuff do? God is not fooled by that appearance. God wants you to have a new heart. He goes on, and he says, uh, the coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within. So if within you aren't being transformed or if you aren't being transformed from within, then these things are going to come out of you. But if you just continue to treat your relationship with God as if it's just about monitoring your behavior, well, I can do this when he's not looking, but when he's, you know, when he's looking, I've got to be a certain way, and on Sundays I'll be this, but on Mondays I'll be that. I mean, it, 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 eventually you're going to have to come to terms with the fact that you don't really have a heart for God. So Jesus says you can monitor your behavior all you want, but a true relationship with God will change your nature. Think about it. When your parents said to you, we don't do that in their house, you can do it in our house. That didn't change your nature. It just made you change your behavior at a certain place at a certain time. But what matters is your nature when it comes to God. See, when you begin to monitor your heart and, hey, what's going on in my heart? What is right? What is wrong? What should I do? Or how should I, you know, respond to that nature that's within me? When you monitor your behavior, you're... Your your heart and your nature, you will be able to master your behavior. You'll be able to actually change your life. See, God knows our heart Monday through Saturday. He is none too pleased if we fake it on Sundays. He actually wants us to be transformed and be better. Be better. Now, that brings us to 2 Corinthians 10. This is in a section of the book where Paul is teaching the Corinthians about what it means to be in Christ truly and fully and how we can be transformed by the grace of God. This uh, this is our second uh, week in this section where Paul is talking about the transformation and the change that God enables in a believer. We talked last week about radical generosity, about how when we uh, are focused on Jesus and full of Jesus, our desires are about His kingdom. uh, Our our heart is about giving to His kingdom, not about taking and saving and hoarding for ourselves. But we see the gift and we see the joy in generosity. So in chapter 10, Paul introduces us to another way that God's grace is going to transform us. But if we learned anything from chapters 8 and 9, it's that God's grace is going to take us in unexpected, unconventional directions. Compared to where this world leads us and where the flesh leads us, listen, this world is not going to make us radically generous. We learned that last week. This world is not going to make us bold, selfless givers. This world says, be greedy, be selfish, eat, drink, and be merry because it's just you and your, your, your stuff until you die. This world does not make us generous. That's why chapters 8 and 9 brought us an unexpected, unconventional word from God. And the same thing is true about what happens in chapter 10, about the type of transformation that God wants to make in our hearts. Let's read chapters 10, verse 1 through 6. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, underline this next part, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ your Bible might say humility, it might say goodness, but, but but most say meekness and gentleness. We'll discuss what they mean in a minute. Who in the presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. And that was something that people said about Paul. Oh, in his words, he's very bold, but when he gets in person, he's just kind of weak, he's kind of meek, he's kind of mild, he's kind of, he's just so gentle. I mean, why doesn't he take a stand for, you know, why doesn't he really let him have it if he disagrees with him? But, but, but Paul says, hey, that's how I am. That's who I am. I am a meek person. I'm a gentle person. That's an intentional thing that I've adopted. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. This is, the, this is our key verse. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war According to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. This verse often is pulled out of this section and it's used to describe all the things that God can do through a Christian in the world. I'm not saying that it can't be apl- applied in that way, but in this passage, that verse is specifically referencing what God wants to do in us against our flesh. Look at verse 5. Casting down argument in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every fault unto captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what is this verse talking about? What is this passage talking about? That you and I have a battle inside our souls. Does it refer to the, the war that's going on around us and how God wants us to be you know, active and present in the world and making a difference through prayer and through boldness? Yes, but specifically in this passage, the war Paul's talking about and the battle he's talking about is against our own thoughts that are contrary to the Spirit of God. Do, do you see that? Casting down the arguments, what are the arguments from our own flesh? The arguments that we make, bringing it against that it brings against the knowledge of God, bringing every one of our thoughts into captivity, so that we might obey Christ. Do you see? Do you see the point there? Can, this, can that can verse four be pulled out and reference the battles that we can engage in in the world and how bold we can be and how prayerful we can be and the answer, the, the things that we can see God do through us? Yes, yes, yes. But that will never be true unless we first. Hear what he's talking about, literally, which is that we have a battle inside our own minds, battle inside of our own flesh, and unless we bring every fault and unless we bring every desire unto the captivity to the obedience of Christ, we won't be any good for the, the kingdom of God out in the world. We won't be of any use. Notice in verse six, he says, "Being ready to punish." Now he doesn't mean literally hurt yourself, but he means Turn, uh, turn, turn down and, and, and reject and walk away from. Uh, put the fire out that the devil lights, that the sin and flesh lights. Ready to punish all disobedience when your f- obedience is fulfilled. So that, tell, that tells us that if we are obedient to what Christ is trying to do in us, we put to rest, we put to bed, we put out the fire of the flesh. Paul is approaching the Corinthians about this battle that's inside all of us. Every one of us, whether you're a preacher or not, right? Whether, you are, you've been a, whether you've served your church since you were a child or whether you just got saved, this battle's in all of us. Nobody gets out of this battle. Nobody elevates themselves, arrives to the point where they're no longer, no longer facing this battle. This battle is in every saint and it's in every newly converted Christian. This is a battle all of us face. But I want to be very clear pays very close attention to how Paul kind of acknowledges the battle and how he thinks we should go about dealing with it. But notice how he appeals to the Corinthians. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, anytime you ever read the words meekness and gentleness in in the Bible, you should be on high alert because the Holy Spirit's wanting to do something in you that is completely unnatural and completely contrary to what your flesh is interested in. Because nobody in here wants to be meek, and nobody in here wants to be gentle. I was talking about rabbits earlier. Rabbits are gentle, right? Uh, people that have their tails between their legs are meek. We don't want to be that way. We don't want, to, we don't want someone to describe us like that. We want to be bold and, and, and brash, and, you know, we want to be recognized as people that shouldn't be messed with. Paul says, hey, I have become a meek and gentle person because of the work that God has done in me. Now, here's what, I, here's what we need to know about this. Paul is being criticized by some people at Corinth for being humble and gracious when he visits them. Now, remember how Paul is dealing with these people that are these Judaizers. They're criticizing Paul and they're trying to discredit Paul. And they're telling the people at Corinth, this guy, this guy has no teeth. This guy shows up and he's so humble and he's so meek. And, uh, you know, how can he be a man of God if he's not brash and crass and loud and angry? These critics wouldn't like him if he was that way, mind you. But they're using this to make because it's an easy target. So Paul piggybacks on that insult levied against him to preach about the transformation that Christ has done in him. So Paul says, "Yeah, you call me meek and gentle. Yeah, that's what I am. That's what I've aspired to be. That doesn't make me less of a Christian. That makes me as I should be as a Christian." He's being called weak regarding the very area and the result in his heart that reflects the strength of Jesus. Listen to that again. He's being called weak in, a, in the very area that is reflecting the power of God. It's in his meekness and in his gentleness that he's reflecting the true power of Christ at work in him and at work, that can be at work in us. This is what Paul was going to say is available to us all, and that's what he means in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Paul says, listen, guys, I'm not fighting fire with fire against these Judaizers, against these Corinthians that have tried to drag me down and destroy me. I'm doing it a different way. And this is why I wanted to talk about this difference in behavior and heart monitoring. There is a remarkable divide between how many professing Christians act in the world with what they confess in church. There is a remarkable divide, and I think the better word is duplicity or hypocrisy, that we confess something in church, but the way we act in the world does not reflect what we confess in church. Now, listen, people are going to always call us hypocrites, They're gonna do that regardless, but there may be. We better make sure there's not any truth to that. Many Christians are careful not to use certain words, cross certain lines in public, but behind the scenes and in secret, their hearts, our hearts, are far from God. That's just the truth. And I think a lot of us we fall fallen in, into this routine where as long as we present something to God that's acceptable and appears to be a certain religious way, that that kind of calms our conscience down a little bit. But this text is meant to expose our hearts and bring us under this light where Paul is trying to, to, to make us aware of this battle, this war. And this duplicity is none more apparent than when it comes to the attitudes we possess and attributes that define us. Attitudes mean the way our our, our mindset, our mentality, the way we, we, you know, persona we display. Attributes are things that describe us, things that people recognize in us. Behavior traits, character traits. We may never lift a finger against someone, but our minds have thought plenty bad. Our mouths have said plenty bad, haven't they? Why is that? Why is it, I know this is convicting, but we'll see this comes from Jesus. Why is it that we may not hurt someone, but we often justify not helping someone? Why is that? That Christians are are very clear to say, oh, we don't do the bad things. But why is it that we also aren't defined by doing good things? We may not act out in a spirit of revenge, but are we driven by a spirit of compassion? And And then what that reveals is our behavior has been throttled, but our hearts are not where they should be. To be a Christian, and this might be controversial to some, but it's so true. To be a Christian isn't to be able to contain bad behavior. It is to be defined by and driven to good Christ-like behavior. Is, Is that clear? To be a Christian isn't to be able to contain well I'm a Christian because I don't break these laws but that's not what it means to be a Christian to be a Christian means that we have a good Christ-like behavior that's driving us this is why the church is really good at defining what's wrong but we often are slow to do what's right and nothing exposes this duplicity Then often as Christians often as Christians and over the last couple of decades it's become so true for Christians in our country we often may not do something wrong, but we don't mind turning our heads to somebody else that's doing it wrong if it if it can directly benefit us. Why is that? Oh well, you know you got to understand that not you know not everything's church, not everything's you know when it comes to serving the Lord. I mean, some people just aren't like that. And hey, I've, I can't you know I'm, I, you know I I I'm not supporting that. I'm just supporting what's good for me. Why is it that we defend and justify bad things? It reveals our hearts are after the wrong things. It's a result of our hearts not being what they can be and what they should be. So many people know their hearts aren't like they should be and say things like, well, that's just how I am. I, I, I'm, I'm picking on people because I've said this too. But I've, said, I've heard this enough from people that I've become aware of it coming out of my own mouth and I can't let myself say it anymore without being very convicted so many of us say, well, you know, that's just how I am. We've always been that way. Oh, I know, you know, hey, I, you know, I, I, that's just kind of, I can't help it. Yeah, you know, I know it's wrong, but hey. Is that okay? Why is it there's stuff that's in our hearts that just comes out every once in a while? That we just say, oh, I don't know where that came from. I know where it came from. It came from our heart. Right? Oh, I don't know where that word came from. I don't know where that thought came from. I don't know why I did that. I mean, yeah, I, I, did, I didn't mean to. I just did X, Y, and Z, then let it up to. Right? Our hearts reveal themselves, don't they? Why is it that sometimes we just lose our cool and we all, oh, I can't help it, they should have known better. They turned, they triggered me. Is that Okay? Brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. We have the power to rein our flesh in and overcome by the Spirit of Christ. Let me be clear. None of us are ever going to be perfect until we get to heaven. But that's not an excuse. Right? None of us are going to be sinless until we get to heaven. But we better all sure be, be working our way toward that spiritual perfection until the day we are called to heaven. There's no reason for us to say, well, hey, I can't help it. Y- yes, the Bible says that we ought to be people defined by our Christian nature. Not just defend, not defending or excusing our fleshly nature, but pointing to certain things that we do certain days of the week, certain times of the week. Because if the church is just a bunch of people who don't drink and don't cheat and don't murder, but they also don't look like Jesus... Then we're just a bunch of religious people who are who have some good morals, but that's not Christianity, is it? I want you to flip over with me just a few pages to Colossians chapter three. Colossians three. Keep a bookmark here. We're going to be flipping around a few places in the next little bit. But Colossians three. I want to read this. It's very, very, very insightful, where Paul talks about this new nature that Christians ought to possess, and and the reason why I'm bringing the, I, I'm I'm focusing on this because I want us to feel this tension. Because, if I mean, you might not be convicted, but I am. And that conviction is that fleshly war we are. is that war we're in. Not physical war, warfare between me and someone else. It's that spiritual warfare in our own hearts. That flesh versus spirit that we all are facing that battle within. That all have that battle within us. Paul says in verse number, um, verse number 9 and 10 of chapter 3, he says, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man in his deeds. Now, what does he mean by that? He's not just meaning don't tell lies. He's saying, hey, don't say you're a Christian, but, not look, but also not look like a Christian. Well, he, he says, that's not... If you're going to tell, tell people you're a Christian, then we need to make sure we put some proof on that. Verse 10, have put off... And have put on the new man which is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And he goes down the list of how it's not about race, it's not about uh, social status, it's about a spiritual work. That's what verse 12 says. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Now, here's what we find out about these things. Those things are not External behaviors are they? They are internal heart conditions. You see what I mean? We're talking about these are conditions of our heart. These are attitudes of our heart. Tender mercy, which is which is you know graciousness, long suffering, kindness, humility, meekness, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so must you also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. What does it sound like that Paul is concerned about for Christians? That we actually look like Jesus, right? The church, as a pastor, we can't, I can't just be interested in people that don't do X, Y, and Z. As a church, we have to aspire to, people, to be people that do... Or look like Jesus and do what Jesus did see people thought Paul was weak and spineless for not rolling up his sleeves and being as nasty and ruthless as his critics were but he uses this opportunity of slander against him to show them the true power and the true nature of a Christian he boasts about his meekness and his gentleness and says this should be every believer's goal. The true marks the true marks of a follower of Jesus are not just are, are not the admirable attributes of this world. Things that make that impress the world will not be things that impress Jesus. Listen, the world is not going to be impressed with humility. It's not going to be impressed with love and kindness and graciousness and gentleness. If you act that way in the corporate world, you get stomped. If you act that way in the political world, you get taken advantage of. If you act that way in any setting in this world, you get left behind. But are we worried about what the world thinks? I don't think so. This is why Paul's saying, don't fight those battles. Our battle is not politically and culturally and and, and corporately and financially. Our battles are not on those fields. You want to win the battle? You want to win the war? You worry about what your heart looks like. And you might not win a battle against X, Y, and Z in this world, but you will win the battle against your own soul and against the devil that tries to enslave you, and you will be victorious where it counts. But we know what this is really all about. It's moving the goalposts. It's moving the goalposts from where we were aiming for, and what we should be aiming for. Now, flip back once more to Matthew chapter 5. I want to highlight a couple of verses. We'll go back to 2 Corinthians in a minute. Remember when Jesus began his ministry, he, he preached a pretty, a pretty controversial sermon. It might not be controversial to us, but to his people in his day it was. He preached a sermon, often referred to as a Sermon on the Mount, where he laid out the different attitudes and attributes that should define a Christian. We covered this a few weeks ago in a morning message in a, in a brief way. But anytime we hear the words of Jesus in this passage, we do a double take because we can't believe he's actually saying what he's saying as Jesus teaches about what it really means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ, he basically he basically um, acknowledges a certain way of living as being superior than the way they had been taught. So in their world might made right. In their world, if you were going to have anything to show for it, you had to be mighty and ruthless, and you had to be, you know, doggy dog You had to take what you could and stomp and move fast and scrape and claw, and you couldn't show mercy. You couldn't show anybody any regard because you had to make a name for yourself, and if someone hit you, you had to hit them back harder. If someone took from you, you had to take more from them, right? If someone, you know, took out your eye, you had to take out... Both of theirs. Y'all see where we're going with this. That's the way our world is and the way it's always been. But Jesus stood on a mountain in front of all these people that were taught to monitor their behavior, and he said, guys, I'm more interested in your hearts. And that's why he said in verse number 5 of chapter 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, you know what meek means? Meek in their day meant weak. Meek was the opposite of mighty. People who, you know, mouth off and really bulk up and think that they can really put people in their place with their tongues and really show people, you know, that they're superior based on how burly they can be and how, you know, uh, uh, strong opinion and will they can be. That might impress people in this world and that might get them somewhere in this world, but Jesus says that is the most insulting thing in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek. Because you've heard, you've heard that the mighty will inherit the earth? No, no, no. The meek will inherit the earth. You mean the people that let you walk over them? You mean the people that have never fought for anything in this world? They're the ones going to get the rest, going to inherit the earth? Absolutely. But but Jesus, Rome is mighty and Rome stomps on the meek. He says, talk to me in 2,000 years about where Rome is and I'll give you an update about how the meek are doing. Listen, this happens in your families, it happens in your workplaces, it happens in every setting you're ever in, in church, and this is what we are expected to do. And listen, there's a battle inside every one of you every single day when, this, when we have to make a choice. Do I Should I be mighty or should I be meek? Should I be mouthy or should I be humble? Should I, you know, really put them in their place and insult them and, and all that, you know, I can, I'm able to. I mean, hey, just give me a minute, roll my sleeves up, and I'll put this person where they belong. Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth, the meek. He goes on in verse 9. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. You may be justified in doing what you're doing, and it may cause division. And you may think, well, it's not my fault. Jesus says that the people that are recognized as the children of God, as in the people that people see and say, they remind me of God, they look like God, they're the ones that pursue peace. And this isn't, oh, I just, I'm not going to speak out against wrong because I'm just going to try to be peaceful. This is, hey, I'm going to stand for what God says, and I'm going to pursue peace no matter what it costs because I want to re- reflect the heart of my Father. Again, people in Jesus, they heard him say, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. And, and they thought, Jesus, that's crazy. We've got to be mighty. We've got to be, you know, division at all costs. And then, he went, and then he would go so far as to say down in verse number 23 regarding of when they would go to worship. And he said, hey, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has an alt against you, as in you remember that you've done something wrong to your brother and, hey, you got by with it, but, hey, he still knows that you did something wrong to him and nobody else knows God, surely God doesn't know you're at the, you're, you're worshiping Jesus, right? You're worshiping God. You don't have to make things right with him. Jesus says, no, no, no. You leave your gift at the altar and you go reconcile with him because God is not impressed with your song. He is more interested in you doing the right thing. Again, that's just so different than what we think, isn't it? Jesus says, you gotta get to the heart of the matter, You've heard it said of old that, you know, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall not be angry. Uh, you've heard it said of old, you shall not lust, but I, or commit adultery, but I say unto you, you shall not lust. As in, hey, it matters what your heart is like. And then he knocks it out of the park in verse 43 and 44 and 45. He says, you've heard it said of old, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. I mean, isn't that crazy? Who does this stuff? People that are like Jesus. Jesus. That too. meekness and peacemaking forgiveness and love and kindness these seem like worldly weaknesses but they are true strength and va- virtues reflecting the kingdom of heaven's greater standards but while these are what everyone else sees they, that, that will no doubt be perceived as weaknesses but there's no denying the power that lies beneath but here's the thing the power the power that God wants to do display through you in this world will never actually show up unless he first does a work within you. Flip back over to 2 Corinthians as we think about that one thought again. Let's go through the slides here. God cannot do great things through anyone unless he has first made changes within them. God cannot do great things within us unless he has first done something great within us. Through us and with us only happens if he's done something within us. I want to read this, these verses again in verses 4, 5, and 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. As in, we are not at war with the government. We're not at war with culture. We're not at war with the liberals or the X, Y, and Z people in the world. We are not at war against them. They are not our enemy. The enemy is Satan, and his battle is in our hearts. If we are distracted by the out the outer war, we'll never first focus on the inner battle within us. So that's why Paul says, I know you're going to be tempted to roll your sleeves up and get down and dirty and get even and do it the way they're doing it. That is not the road you are to take as Christians. We are to be meek. We are to be gentle. We are to be loving. We are to be kind. We are to be different. Casting down arguments, every high thing exalting against itself, against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought unto captivity, unto the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, one last turn, just a few pages to the right, Galatians 5, and we'll end here. I wanted to show you all these different texts because I feel like they're important that we see how this is connected. Spiritual warfare often gets turned into us versus somebody else. But spiritual warfare begins, and its greatest battles are within us all. Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, this is what Paul says. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the the flesh lusts against the Spirit, or wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. I don't think I can overstate it. We all face temptation, like Jesus did in the wilderness. And we've got to do just like he did, which is take refuge in the word of God and the power of God to overcome the flesh. But that power can, that, the power of God can be at work in us, but you will be tempted every single day. You and I, we all will be Tempted. You'll be tempted to turn thing, turn, take matters into your own hands and not trust in the Lord. That's why people resort to other resources, other refuges instead of God when they're having a bad day. You'll be tempted to be angry instead of forgive. You'll be tempted to be jealous instead of being content with what God's given you. You know, think about the, the awareness we have of the world that people didn't have 100 years ago, even 50 years ago. I, there's a lot of anger in the hearts of Christians in today's world. And I think that stems from the fact that we are, we are really aware of what's going on around us. And we are a lot more aware at the people getting by with stuff than anybody was 50, 60, 100 years ago. As in nowadays, we can turn on the news and people, and, and they use this to make us mad and to get our votes, they're always talking about those people that are doing the wrong things. And that makes us mad, doesn't it? Makes us angry and makes us you know, frustrated. So many Christians are angry and really we're saying to God, God, why are you letting them get by with that? I could never get by with that. I wouldn't want to, but I still couldn't if I wanted to. God, why are they getting by with it? And all that does is make us angry and make us hateful and greedy and all these things. Don't you see what the devil has done? He's took the battle out of our heart and he's put it in front of us. And he's made us so angry and so upset at all the wrong people. You will be tempted to walk away from where God puts you to work. You'll be tempted to find an easier path with somewhere somewhere else or with someone else. You'll be tempted to stop, serve, stop serving the Lord, to cut back your efforts too, because it's not worth it. You'll be tempted to get angry at God for things not working out like you felt like you, they should be for you. You'll be tempted to get angry at someone else because you feel like, that, hey, God should be different. You will, we will, we will, all will be tempted. And that's why you can't turn a page in the New Testament without finding commandments about what it means to truly be a Christian. In Galatians five twenty two, the fruit of the Spirit. And why do we keep seeing these same things? Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. Why does it always come back to the heart? Think about this. Why does it always come back to the way we treat people and the way we respond to people, the way we perceive people? Because that's where the battle is. You know why Jesus says to, tells you to love all the time? Because he knows that would overcome half the problem, 99% of the problems that we face. If we just quit worrying about everybody else and we just started thinking about what God wants us to do and that would expose the things in our heart that aren't right and that would motivate us to do what's Right? These things may not seem powerful, but this power, as described in these fruits, they have the power to counter any demon from hell. The world says, oh, that's not going to work. Your flesh says that's not going to work. But shouldn't we pay attention when the Bible repeats itself again and again and again and again? And when Paul says the battle's in your heart, shouldn't we pay attention to that? Love. Love puts God first. And others first every time but but nah, if you just stick with that you'll be okay but man that's hard to accept yeah because the battle's in us isn't it of course it's hard that exposes the real battle doesn't it love says God and others are first no matter what joy says I'm gonna rejoice no matter what happens because God is in control you know what? Joy, joy doesn't get his feelings hurt. I'm not being mean. But, you know, people pout and get the feelings hurt and get mad and, and quit talking and quit coming to church. Joy says, I'm not going to get mad because God's in control. Yeah, they did me wrong but hey, what's that to me? God's in control. God's still my God. He's still in control. He loves me. I'm his. I'm I belong to him. It's going to work out. I'm rejoicing no matter what and I'm not going to let them get in the way of me singing to God. Man, how, how much better would we be if we lived by these virtues, Right? Love says, hey, I can't quit loving God and loving people. Yeah, they're wrong. And yeah, they did me wrong. And yeah, I've got reasons to get mad and do everything else. But hey, I can't let that get in the way of me doing the right thing. Love puts God first. Joy says, hey, I don't care what happens. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad. I'm going to realize that I have a purpose today. Peace, peace rests under God's control. I know I could worry. I know I could panic. I know I could get, you know, pull my hair out. But why would I worry when I can have peace? And I don't have to fight you because you're not my enemy. I don't have to go to war against you and get all angry and work to pull and, and tear everything down because you're not my enemy. They're not my enemy. God is in control, and he's given me the peace I need. Patience says, hey, I'm going to endure no matter what. Yeah, I could get frustrated and quit and get angry and all this other stuff, but hey, I've got to endure to the end because I know I win when it's all, when it's all said and done. Kindness and goodness and faithfulness showcase the best of Jesus even when the world gives us his worst because has Jesus Jesus ever not given you his best? So I'm going to be kind, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be faithful even when I've got reasons not to because Jesus has never let me down. Think about this. If we just live by those virtues, how different would the world be? You know what that reveals to me? The reason why we resist this? You know what that reveals? The battle is in us, isn't it? Self-control says, hey, it's not worth it to give up or get in, give in because I've got to see the power of God at work. If we're going to be used for great things in this world, we've got to let God do great things in us for his glory and for others' good. So I, I plead with you, don't take the bait from this world. Don't take the bait from the person that, that you, you're, you're awake for an hour tomorrow and somebody walks into your life and they just really pull every string and they pull every fuse and it's just going crazy. Don't take the bait. The battle's right here. Our greatest battle is within. God's power wants, us, wants to have a full effect in us so that he can use us to truly impact our world. I, I know this may feel like, well, hey, well, why are you picking on me, preacher? I'm not picking on you. I'm, I'm picking on me, but I'm not picking on you. Listen, if they're the problem, they'll get it one day. They will. But that day's not today. And God says to you, hey, you're worried. You want them to get theirs before it's time? No, no, no. Even the demon was put into the pig because it wasn't the time for it to get judged. So who are we to think it is time for us to bring the wrath on somebody right now in front of us? That's not the battle. You know where the battle is? Right here. You know how relieving that is to admit that? You know how much better we would be if we just said, God, the battle's in me. I don't want to be the one fighting the wrong battle. I want my heart to be like yours. Let's pray for God to help us with that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for showing us that the real battle is within Lord, I know our nature, our nature says, but our nature has so many objections to this. Our nature has so many buts and ifs, and I can't understand. Our nature doesn't want to accept that. And, And I get it, we all get it. You understand it, but that's why you want us to understand this so clearly tonight. The battle is within us, and if we all focused on the battle in our own hearts, we would be able to win the war, and the war is against the flesh and against sin, against the devil, and he wants to enslave all of us. So, Father... Would you help all of us to focus on our hearts and our battles and help us to make sure as much as depends on us, we are going to see the power of God at work and we are going to display the Spirit of God through our lives and we aren't going to take the bait and fight a different battle when the battle is within. Thank you, Jesus, for this help. We ask this in his name. Amen.